If you will, take your Bible and look at uh, the book of Psalms. Go to chapter 73. Psalm 73, we'll be reading verses 25, 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Amen. Keep your Bibles open to Psalm 73, and we'll be there in just a moment. I want to say it's good to see you today. We have uh, many who are visiting and some who have uh, been away and are back with us. We're thankful for that. Of course, we have several who continue to be out and about and uh, traveling and others who are sick and not feeling well. But today I want to especially remind you or make you aware, if you're not already, that Julie's parents are here. And it is uh, just not hardly a service that passes. And one of you does not ask Julie or I how her dad is doing. Well, today you can see for yourself, and uh, I know you would enjoy to visit and say hello, and I'm not speaking for him, but I will say on his behalf how much uh, we are thankful for that, and how much we, we know that your prayers have been heard, and they've been answered in such a powerful way, and uh, we are just so glad that they can be here with us today. They got in last night, and Lord willing, they'll be here until about Friday, and so uh, we're anxious for a good visit together. So uh, again, just want to make you aware of that, and and say thank you again uh, on their behalf and our behalf for, for your prayers. Uh, it is good to see them and glad to see all of you. You open your Bibles to Psalm 73. One of the first things you'll notice is that Psalm 73 is not a psalm of David. If you notice, it says that this is a psalm of Asaph. Now Asaph, if, of course, is much less well-known than David. What do we know about this man Asaph? I think it's important as we introduce Psalm 73 to remind us that this is a psalm of Asaph and to ask, what do we know about him? Who is this Asaph and why is that important for our study of Psalm 73? Well, when you think of Asaph, you automatically need to think praise. When you think Asaph, you need to equate that with praise. What do we know about this man Asaph? Well, what we know is that this is going to begin a string of about 11 psalms in a row that Asaph is going to write. Well, who is he and what do we know? Well, you go back in your Bibles and you can see this in other places. But if you go back in your Bibles to the book of 1 Chronicles in chapter 16, you will find that when the Ark of the Covenant of God is brought by David into the tabernacle, that this was an occasion of great praise. If you recall, they had tried to get it there and uh, they had gone against God and they'd put it on a cart. Uzzah had reached up to steady that ark and Uzzah died. Well, David was upset about this. David was upset about that on that occasion. Well, finally, the people of God, they go back to his word and they say, you know what, we weren't doing it right. We need to be carrying the ark of God. And when the ark of God made it to Jerusalem into the tabernacle, there was an eruption of praise. The one leading that was Asaph. 
David puts Asaph in charge of leading that praise as the ark of God is brought into the tabernacle. As you go further into 1 Chronicles, you'll find in chapter 25 that David not only puts Asaph, but the sons of Asaph in charge of praise. Asaph is called a chief of praise in 1 Chronicles chapter 25. Well, how long is this going to continue? Well, you go all the way through the reign of David and Solomon and into the divided kingdom, and then you get into uh, Babylonian captivity, 70 years of captivity, and then you get to the days of Ezra. And the Bible says that in the days of Ezra, that the sons of Asaph were still in charge of temple praise. In fact, in Ezra chapter 3, we find that when the foundation of the temple was laid, that it was the sons of Asaph who were leading the praise as the foundation of the temple was there. When you think Asaph, you need to think praise. When you think Asaph, you need to think of the house of God and leading praise in worship. This is Asaph. Now, why is that important? Well, Asaph is going to write 12 psalms. Psalm 50, and then he's going to pick up here in 73, and he's going to write psalms 73 through 83. And you can read these. And when you think about Asaph, you need to be thinking about praise and what he's all about. But that is especially important, it seems to me, when you think about this man who is equated with the praise of God, when you think about what he writes in Psalm 73. I love the Word of God for so many reasons, and I know you do too. Reasons that we can't even begin to articulate. Reasons, so many reasons that we can't even begin to really make it known. But one of the reasons I love the Word of God is because the Word of God is real. The Word of God tells us about real people and real, real feelings that they were really feeling. And when you think about this Asaph, this man of praise, I want you to think about what he writes in Psalm 73. This morning I want to go through Psalm 73, and then in the end I want to make a few points of application. I want to begin in verse number 1, and I want you to see that Asaph, this man of praise, makes a very strong statement. I think it is a conclusion that he has reached after certain points in his life. In verse number 1, he makes this strong statement, Truly, God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. God is good. Truly, God is good. He is good to Israel. He is good to those who are pure in heart. What a strong statement for him to make. Jesus says to that rich man in Matthew 19 and verse 17, Why do you call me good? Only one is good, and that is God. I think here Asaph has reached this great conclusion in verse number 1, where he can look back over the history of Israel, and he can see the hand of God, and he knows that God has been so good, that God has blessed them so richly, and He's taken such good care to make them where they are. Truly, God is good. If I want to reach one conclusion in my life, may it be what Asaph reached. Truly, God is good. Truly, God is good. Truly, God is good to those who are pure in heart. These are the ones who will see God, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 8. Truly, God is good. And so this is, I think, a foundational statement, this strong statement that he makes. But then, as it were, he backtracks, I think, just a little and he says, let me tell you about this statement. 
and where I once was in considering the goodness of God. In verse number 2, Asaph says, I nearly forgot that God was good. In verse number 2, he says, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Yes, God is good, but as for me, he says, I nearly forgot this. I nearly went backwards. I nearly allowed myself to not appreciate God and His goodness. I almost walked away from God. Truly God is good to those who are pure in heart. Truly God has been good to His people. But Asaph says in a real moment, I nearly walked away from that. I nearly gave up on Him. I I nearly allowed myself to get to a point where I didn't appreciate His goodness, where I was not right with Him. I nearly walked away from Him. I started going in the opposite direction. My feet almost slipped. I nearly gave it up. You know in your heart of hearts as you sit here this morning, I'm pretty confident most, if not all, could confidently say, I know that God is good. I know as I sit here this morning, I know that God is good. I can look back over the course of my life and I can know, I know that God is good. And perhaps it is true of you sitting here this morning. Maybe it is true of you sitting here today that you're having those moments of doubt where where you're you're contemplating, making this contemplation as Asaph was of, of walking away. Well, why would you do that, Asaph? I mean, this is a man associated with praise. Why would you nearly walk away? I think two, two points really sum up the rest of the psalm in this, in this section. He said, I'll tell you why I nearly walked away. I've reached a conclusion that God is good, but I nearly walked away from Him. Number one, I was watching as the wicked prospered. I was watching as the wicked were prospering. Now just pick up with me and look at what he says. I'm not going to stop at every single verse, but I'm going to stop at a few. In verse number 3, Why was I nearly slipped? Why had my feet almost stumbled? Verse number 3, For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I'm watching the wicked prosper and I don't get it. I'm watching people who are going against God. They've got all this that life can offer and, and it seems that God doesn't care that they're just continuing to prosper. Verse 4, there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They don't seem to have any troubles in life. Verse number 5, they're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. I can't see that they have any issues that I have. I see the wicked prospering. I see the wicked not having any trouble in their life. It doesn't seem that they have any issues like I'm suffering in my life. See it? Verse 6, therefore pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. Their face puffs out. It seems that they're eating to their full to the point that their eyes are bugging out. They've got all of this abundance in their lives. They have more than their heart could wish. They scoff and they speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walks through the earth. Listen, there's no one on the face of the earth who can't see that they're evil, that they're wicked, that they're going against God. They openly mock and scoff against Him. 
They don't seem to care about God. They don't need God. They've got no room in their life for God. And Asaph says, I'm watching this. And they've got all of the world's goods. They've got everything in abundance. They are prospering so greatly. And I am suffering. They just don't seem to have any trouble. And so I go back and I continue reading in verse number 10. Therefore his people return here, and waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in their riches. Now don't miss what Asaph says in verse number 10. This statement that he makes, that their waters of a full cup are drained. It's as if he is saying, God, we are thirsty for answers. We are thirsty for answers as to why this is true. Why are the wicked prospering? Why do they not seem to have any trouble? Why does it seem that you don't care? We're thirsty for answers. They just don't seem to have all the issues that I have in my life. In verse number 12, they always seem to be at ease. They are increasing in riches. Why do the wicked prosper? So Asaph says, first of all, I nearly walked away from God because this just doesn't add up. This just doesn't make sense. And so you pause for just a moment and you say, have I thought that in my life? Have I not wondered that? Why is it that the wicked seem to prosper? Why is it that the richest people on the face of the earth are so against God? Why is it that those who seem to have all of this earth's good, they're so bad? They do so many terrible things. They don't seem to care at all about God. Okay, flip the coin. Asaph said, now look at the other side. The wicked seem to prosper and the righteous seem to suffer. You see that? Look at verse 13. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain. I've washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. I have washed my hands in innocence. And maybe, just maybe, I've done this in vain. God, if you're going to reward the the wicked, then why am I suffering as a righteous one? Why am I bothering at this? Why why am I trying to live a holy life and it doesn't seem to be doing any good? I love the Word of God because it's real. Isn't that real? I mean, haven't you thought something like that? Or maybe those questions have just run through your mind before? Why why do the wicked seem to prosper and why is it? God, I am trying to be righteous. I'm striving to be faithful to you. I love you. I love Jesus and I know what he's done for me. Why am I sick? Why is my loved one sick? Why am I losing my job? Why am I poor? Why am I suffering? In a real moment, I think Asaph is asking all of the same questions. Why am I trying to live a holy life if there's no reward for it? All right, now we're going to get somewhere. But I want you to notice, to his credit, 
I think Asaph says this in verses 15 and 16. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. I think what Asaph is saying there is, I was having these doubts in my mind and I had these questions running through it, but I didn't articulate that. I didn't share that. This is a struggle that I was having within myself. And I didn't go to God's people. I didn't go to others. And I didn't share what I was going through because I didn't want to hurt their faith. I didn't want to damage their faith. I'm struggling with this, he's saying, but I, I want to get through this. I want to talk my, work my way through what I am thinking. And so he says, I, I kept this as an inward struggle. Okay, so the psalm isn't terribly difficult to understand, it seems, right? I mean, you can see how it lays itself out. Strong statement in verse number 1. He's having strong doubts as he goes through his life. He's nearly going to walk away from God. So Asaph, how do you keep from walking away from God? Well, here is a strong discovery that he makes. In verse number 17... Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. I don't have the words, my friend. I just don't. It's, it's a failing of mine, no doubt, but how do you say exactly what he's saying? How do you get through these moments in your life where here it is, I, I have strong doubt, I am questioning God, I'm questioning His Goodness, I'm questioning in my mind why the wicked are prospering, and I'm questioning in my mind why the righteous are suffering. So he says, I'm working myself through this, but this is what I found out. I went to the sanctuary of God, and I, I got it. I love the realness of Psalm 73. I think it's a powerful psalm and one that you and I would do well to give much and serious thought to. I had questions about God and what was going on. But instead of going away from God, I drew myself closer to God. I went to the sanctuary of God. What are we tempted to do in moments where we question as He was? What are we tempted to do we're tempted to do what he was tempted to do in verse number 2. We're tempted to walk away. But Asaph says the answers, the reality of it is, I grew closer to God when I went to the sanctuary of God. This is a man of praise. And what did he do? He went to the house of praise. And there he says, I got my answers. I went to the sanctuary of God. And that's when I found out what I needed to know. I was reminded in verse number 18 that surely you set them in a slippery place. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment they are utterly consumed with terrors. The time of the wicked is coming. Yes, they may prosper now, but they're not always going to prosper. And that's the point that Asa finds out when he goes to the house of God. And what he says in verses 21 and 22 is, God, I was so short-sighted. 
My heart was grieved. I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. (laughs) I was just an animal living for the moment. We have a dog at home, and his name is Wyndham. And uh, you know what Wyndham lives for? The next time to eat. (laughs) That's all he lives for. I mean, he can't wait. It is amazing when that dog has food in front of him. He attacks it. It is unbelievable, Philip. You know I'm right. He goes after it like you would never believe. And it is gone in a moment. He's living for the next time. I think Asaph in saying, I was a beast before you, is I was so short-sighted. I was living for the moment. He says, I wasn't opening my eyes to a bigger picture. He said, I was fixed in a moment. God, I was guilty of being short-sighted. You've been guilty of being short-sighted? You get caught up in the today. And what's going on today? And what am I suffering today? And what are my loved ones suffering today? God, I was like a beast before you. And I opened my eyes. What I found is, I have one who is on my side. And as long as he is the one on my side, I don't need anybody else. In verse 23... Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Verse 27, For indeed those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry, but it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. So you can see the process of his life, right? You can see the process that he's worked himself through. You can see that he's gone from these great questions of God and asking, why are the wicked prospering? Why are the righteous suffering? God, it doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right. Why am I hurt when when wicked people don't seem to be? I came to the sanctuary of God. And there I was reminded of, of who you are. And my need for you. And my need to stay with you. You see the word good in verse 28? It's good for me to draw near to God. I want you to draw a line in your mind or literally back up to verse number one. Truly God is what? Truly God is good. Therefore, it is good for me to draw myself closer to Him. When you're tempted in your moment of doubt and grief and despair to walk away, What a great reminder Psalm 73 is to draw yourself closer to God. So I want you to think with me now as we hone in just a little bit closer on verse number 25 and that great question that is posed there. Whom have I in heaven but you? I just want to give you some moments of of great application I feel for our lives. When we go through these moments that Asaph seems to be going through, I'm just reminding us, something you know, I'm just reminding us that this is what the Bible says. 
Whom have I in heaven but you in my moment of doubt? Asaph was going through doubt, wasn't he? I love the Word of God because the Word of God is real. You know, the Bible could have said, uh, or the Holy Spirit could have said, you know, Asaph, that's a, that's a fine thing for you to write, and by inspiration it's good for you to have written that, but we're just going to leave that one out, right? We're not going to put that one in. We don't want, we don't want to, anybody to know that, that this can happen, that you can question these things. But the Holy Spirit saw fitting for this to be in my Bible, in yours. I think about other people the Bible gives us example of who had doubts. I think about Gideon. You remember there in Judges chapter 6 that God's people had been carried away into captivity by the Midianites. And the Bible says in Judges chapter 6 that the angel of God, the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon. And the angel of the Lord looked down on him and, and said, The Lord is with you. Remember Gideon's response? If the Lord is with us, then why has this befallen us? Now, isn't that real? If God is really with us, then why are we suffering like this? If the Lord is still with us, then why have we been carried away into captivity? Sound like doubt? Does to me. I think Gideon had a doubt. God, are you really there? God, are you really watching this? God, are you going to do anything about it? And what did Gideon find out? Gideon found out that with 300 men and God, you can win. That with just 300 men and God, you can defeat a whole army. You can take out a whole nation. He had his doubts realized, didn't he? That God was absolutely still there. In a moment of clarity, I think you could honestly say that Job had doubt. He had doubt about God. He had doubts whether God was really there. He had doubts about whether God was really listening that God was really seeing what he was going through and what he was experiencing. And yet in the end of Job, after God speaking out of a whirlwind in Job 42, verses 1 through 6, Job lays himself out bare before God and in the end says, God, I was wrong. God, I repent in dust and ashes. I am just flesh and you are the Almighty God. And what he came to realize is that his doubts weren't necessary. They were real, but God displayed Himself again and again in His life. How about doubting Thomas? <laughs> he doubted so much that we give him a nickname, Doubting Thomas. Yeah, he had doubts, didn't he? The, the other apostles said, hey Thomas, Jesus is raised. And he said, nah, I need to see it for myself. Don't you love that? In John chapter 20, when Jesus came and, and He said, Thomas... Put your fingers here in my hands. Put your fingers into my side. And he says, do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas's response after doing so was what? My Lord and my God. Jesus said, don't be unbelieving, but believing. You don't need to live with doubt. Asaph gives us the same story. I want to draw strength for being closer to God. I don't want to leave him. I need Him. And though I may have doubts in this life, it is an opportunity for us to draw ourselves closer to God. And the more you study it, the closer that we will get. We want to draw our strength from being closer to God. God, what about when I'm lonely? Whom have I in heaven but You when I am lonely? Is that real? Boy, that's real. Some of you are feeling that today. 
Some of you have gone through those moments, and some of us, some of us will probably go through them ourselves. How do you think Asa felt? This is a man of praise. This is a man who goes to the sanctuary of God. This is a man who is out in front. This is a man responsible for leading God's people in worship and in praise to God. And in his moments by himself, he's having these questions run through his mind. And he says, I'm not going to articulate this to anybody else. He's going through this and he's battling it by himself, it seems. He's feeling, don't you know, a little lonely. What's the remedy? I want to never forget. Whom have I in heaven but you when I feel in this way? You think Job was lonely? You know, will you just keep your finger and run back to there? Look at these verses in Job 19. Well, the Bible, it's just outdated. The Bible's just an old book. The Bible just doesn't have any application for me. All the excuses that people may make. Here's a real man in real words in Job 19, beginning in verse 13. Job says, He has removed, He, God, He has removed my brothers far from me, and my acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have failed, my close friends have forgotten me. Those who dwell in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I am an alien in their sight. I call my servant, but he gives no answer. I beg him with my mouth. My breath is offensive to my wife, and I am repulsive to the children of my own body. Even young children despise me. I arise, and they speak against me. All my close friends abhor me, and those whom I love have turned against me. Does that sound lonely? That sounds so lonely, doesn't it? Yeah, Job felt that way. You know, you go back to the book of Psalms in Psalm 142 and verse number 4. David, he has a moment of loneliness in Psalm 142. If you look at it, this is what it says in verse number 4. He says, look on my right hand and see, there is no one who acknowledges me. Refuge has failed me. No one cares for my soul. You think David felt lonely? Absolutely he did. And yet, the next verse in verse number 5 I cried out to you, O Lord. I said, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. And so a, mo a moment of loneliness, he was reminded of the presence of God. I just want to plant this in your minds as we study Psalm 73. That in these moments where I might have doubt, where I might have questions arise in my mind, where I might be feeling a little lonely, where I might be feeling down, whom have I in heaven but you? What a thought. I want to think about it more. You know, our Lord knew loneliness. He knew it in a physical sense. In Mark chapter 14 and verse 50, the Bible says that, that all the apostles fled. They forsook Him and they fled. I, I appreciate the fact that our Lord knows what loneliness is and what it feels like. And he knows in moments where you and I might feel lonely, he's able to understand exactly what that's like and what he's gone through. You see, loneliness hasn't gone away. Loneliness is felt by those without a spouse. Loneliness is felt by those who have lost a spouse. Loneliness is felt even by young people as they're going through life. And, 
and maybe don't feel that, that they're appreciated or they don't feel that they're understood. Maybe it's felt by you in, in, in your workplace. You don't have any close friends or any close co-workers. And sometimes you get to feeling, I'm on an island. I'm out here by myself. I just think Asaph understands that feeling. I think he, he was going through some of that. Our Lord understood some of that. The Apostle Paul understood that. And yet, in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 17... All, all of them departed from me, but the Lord stood with me. I, I don't want you to think, this is just preacher talk. Oh, that's what preachers have to say. Or, you know, that's what we have to think. Or, you know, that, that's what's best. That's what the Bible says. Paul says, the Lord stood with me. The Lord is with me. The Lord says, cast all of your care upon me. Why? Because I care for you. I just want to remember, whom have I in heaven but you? Oh, we could go through a lot, right? Asaph says, Lord, the wicked don't seem to get sick. The wicked don't seem to go through these moments. They just seem to prosper. I mean, it seems they've got more than life can offer them. They've got more than they wish. It doesn't seem that the wicked ever get sick, and yet... I walk into church building after church building and I look at bulletin after bulletin and there's this long prayer list of the sick. Why? Well, we get sick. You know, there's a king in Israel. He got sick. Ahaziah. And the Bible says in 2 Kings chapter 1, verses 1-4 through 4, that when Ahaziah got sick, he went and sought the, the doctors of Beelzebub. He went to the magicians, the astrologers. He went to those people who were followers of Beelzebub. He went to the false god and the rulers of the false god. And God says, because that's the direction you went, you're going to die. And he did. What's the opposite of that? Well, the opposite of that is Hezekiah. In chapter 20 in 2 Kings, the Bible says Hezekiah got sick. Well, guess what? Even kings get sick. And the Bible says Hezekiah got sick and he turned not to false gods, he went to God. He went to a prophet of God. And God extended his life. I hate sickness. You can hear it even in my voice today and I'm sorry for that. I don't feel badly. I just don't sound so good. There are some in this auditorium this morning who you say, are, well, they're bad sick. Serious sick. Treatment needed sick. Does God care about that? Whom have I in heaven but you? You know the answer is, yes, God cares about that. God sees us when we're sick. The great physician is able to do something about it. But this is what I also know. I know that I don't want to go through this life thinking that I don't have a responsibility to those who are sick. Jesus paints a picture there of the great day of judgment, right? In Matthew 25, that great day where separation occurs and those on his right and those on his left. And he says to those who are on his right, those who have been faithful to him, he says, in part, you looked out for the sick. God says, I don't want the sick to be alone. I want you to help the sick. But this I know also. I don't want to fail to trust in the providence of God. My father-in-law is here today. 
with a smile on his face. He's not moving quite as quickly. He's a little more stiff than he was last time I saw him. But you know, the last time I saw him, he was in a neck brace using a walker. I'm telling you, it's amazing what God can do. It is amazing what God can do. And you know what? Not everybody gets to walk again. Not everybody is healed. There is sickness that leads to death. But God has, God has promised to be good. I want to never fail to trust Him. Now let me give you just one or two more, and I'm going to, I'm going to be done. But whom have I in heaven but you? When I am facing death, who do you want by your side when you're facing death? Asaph says, I know who I want by my side. I know I've questioned some things over, over the course of my life, but I know when it's time for me to face death, I know who I want by my side. I don't want to walk away from him. I want to stay with him. Whom have I in heaven when I am facing death. The Bible makes it so clear, right? Don't you love the Word of God? I love that God, He doesn't mince any words. I love the fact that God says that death is an appointment that we're all going to meet. I don't wake up in the morning thinking about death. I usually don't go to bed at night thinking about death. And yet I know in my heart of hearts as you do that it's an appointment I will meet. It's coming. It's appointed for all men to die. And after this, the judgment. I know that day's coming, and so do you. And so I think about those that the Scriptures tell us face death and how they did it. Don't you think about the Apostle Paul when it comes to facing death? I don't know how you don't. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 1, he says, Look, one day I'm going to put off this tent. I know it's going to be destroyed, but when it is, I know that we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. I know that my day is coming. And so you go to Philippians chapter 1 and you see his familiar words again, right? This is how I want to face death. This is how I want to be thinking. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I want to live my life that way. I want to stand with God because Jesus has destroyed the power of death. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 14 and 15 that that same power will be with me, that that same power is going to raise me from the dead, that that same power is going to transport me to be with Him in glory forever. Aesop says, I know that one day I'm going to be with Him in glory. That's how he faced death. That's how he went through his life. Oh, there are some great psalms and certain great passages that you can go to and you can draw straight such great comfort from. I want to close this morning with a couple of these. In Psalm 55 and verse 22, what does the psalmist say? Cast your burden on the Lord. He will sustain you. He shall never permit the righteous to be moved. Don't you love that? He held somebody's hand as their life was drained. Been in that moment. Cast all your care upon Him. That's what the Bible says. Psalm 27 and verse 14. The Bible says, Wait on the Lord. You be of good courage, 
and He shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Jesus says, come to Me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You come to Me, I will see you through. Whom do I have in heaven but you? I only have God. He's the one who promises to be with Me. Whom have I in heaven but you when I am lost? The answer is, I only have the Lord. The Lord is the only way that I can go from a state of being lost to being saved. Can you say it any better than Peter did in John chapter 6, verses 66 through 69? Jesus is watching the multitudes walk away. And He turns to the twelve and He says, Do you also want to walk away? Are you going to go away? And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You are the Christ. Whom have I in heaven but you? I don't want to turn to any man. I don't want to turn to any individual and say, what will you give me? I went to the sanctuary of God. I went to worship. I went to offer praise. And when I drew myself closer to God, all those doubts went away. I live my life for glory. I live my life for Him. I live my life in anticipation of being with Him. You're going to struggle. We're going to have moments where, uh, where things just don't seem to be going our way. Asaph did. And so did a host of others as we've seen this morning. But in the end, one can save your soul. And that is Jesus the Christ. And if you've not responded to Him in faith, repentance, and baptism, if you've not come to Him and been washed in His blood, if your sins have not been washed in the waters of baptism, if you've not made contact with that blood to have your sins forgiven, then you remain in your sin. And my friend, today, you can take all of that away by obeying Him and doing what He says. This morning, if you're not a Christian, won't you come to Him? Whom do I have in heaven but You? Whom have I in heaven but You, Lord? I need You. And this morning, if you need to respond to His invitation, will you come to the Lord? This morning, if you as a Christian, you've not only been tempted like Asaph, but maybe you've gone ahead and walked away. You're here today, but you know in your life that you've not been living faithfully. And this morning, you want to change that. You want to come back to Him. What an opportunity the Lord has provided you to come back to Him. Friends, as we go through life with all of its struggles, with all of its heartache, with all of its hurt, may we never fail to recognize what God has given us, that truly we have Him on our side. Won't you come as we stand and sing?